The only announcement that I have uh, tonight is that to, there an email went out yesterday that is related to a meeting with the uh, uh, prep school tomorrow night, and that is going to be a uh, go-to-meeting so that, that even if you don't have go-to-meeting on your laptop, you can just click a link and you can do that. So you need to look at the information that is given you in that email that went out. If you are watching your live streamer, of course, everybody's a live streamer right now, then you need to, if you do not get the emails, then you need to email in or go to the Dean Bible Ministries or West Houston Bible Church uh, websites and look around, and there is a place for you to sign up to be on the on the email list. And <clears throat> with that, just one other announcement, because on Sunday morning I had mentioned that the governor of the state might put us under a shelter-in-place um, a mandate, which he did not do, but he left it up to the county judges, which in the state of Texas means they're the highest authority in the county. And so they did put uh, tech, uh, Houston, Harris County, under a stay-at-home uh, mandate. But the exceptions include uh, coming to the uh, churches, churches live streaming, or doing a virtual uh, worship service. And so up to 10 people can be present. That includes all of the techies and everybody else, so that they were smart enough to do that. So that will not be an issue. So if you did not get the emails that were sent out today telling everybody about this, we will be able to continue uh, having Bible class on Tuesday and Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time and on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Central Daylight Savings Time. Okay? How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our time in God's Word this evening. Every time we study the Word, that is an act of worship. We are to worship by means of the Spirit. Whenever we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, so the Spirit is not working positively in our spiritual life at that moment. And so it's necessary for us to confess sin. Confess sin simply means to admit or to acknowledge our sin to God. It doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean feeling sorry for your sins. It doesn't mean self-flagellating and bargaining with God. It simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. And instantly, in His grace, because we're already saved, because of His grace, He forgives us of those sins and goes on to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we prepare to study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded that you are the creator of all things. But not only that, you in your providential care have oversight of all things. 
And, Father, even though there's chaos in the world today because of this COVID virus, there's chaos for many, many other reasons, many political reasons, many social reasons and economic reasons. Father, we know, nevertheless, that you are in control. And you allow these things because in your permissive will, you, you have given us free will. And because of the exercise of free will in disobedience to you, that has brought corruption, that has brought pestilence and war, droughts, all manner of horrible things into our existence. And, Father, one day you will bring this to a close. But until then, you continue to allow these things to happen, that you might harvest as many souls as you can throughout the history of the human race, that they may learn of your grace, trust in Christ as Savior, and grow to spiritual maturity. Father, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we trust in you. You are our refuge. You are our shield, our fortress. You are our rock. And we rely upon you, take refuge in you to protect us and to preserve us, to guard us, and to keep us uh, healthy. And if we fall prey to this disease, we know that you are using it for a purpose, a significance that we might be a testimony to those who minister to us, those who surround us, and that we might be in the right place at the right time, perhaps, to be used by you to give the gospel to somebody desperately in need. And, Father, we pray that you might preserve and protect us, supply our needs as a local church and as a congregation, and we pray that we might grow stronger spiritually in this time of testing, and that as we study your word, we might gain comfort as well as strength, knowledge, and that we might continue to pursue our spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this evening to Psalm chapter 64. Psalm chapter 64. We're continuing in our study of Second Samuel, and we are in the midst of <clears throat> studying about the rebellion of Absalom against his father, King David. And in that, he has uh, worked a conspiracy for a number of years, uh, working his way with some of David's closest advisors, some of his closest friends and associates. And he has woven his way into the, uh, in, into the affections of these people so that he has lied and he has deceived, he has distracted David, so that he now is in a position where he thinks he can seize the throne. And we have seen from our study in Second Samuel that David has uh, fled the city, and on his way out of the city as he is going up the Kidron Valley, crossing over the uh, Mount of Olives, he was thinking through what he later wrote down as Psalm 3. And now we are going to look at a different psalm tonight. And in this psalm, we learn that God is our protector, just as God was David's protector. We see an example of his faith uh, for divine uh, protection. In Psalm 3 last week, we read in the superscription that this was a psalm of David, psalm written by David, when he fled from Absalom his son. So at the beginning of that psalm, we knew that there was a specific historical event that that psalm was tied to. 
we studied certain things about Psalm 3, and in that, David was praying that God would would do something about the slander, about the malicious lies and the conspiracy against him. And in this psalm, we see what might be the same kind of thing and an answer to that prayer that's articulated in Psalm 3 as well as here in in Psalm 64. However, there is no historical superscription. All that we have at the beginning of Psalm 64 is the annotation that this is for the chief musician in the uh, worship in the temple or tabernacle, and that it is a psalm written by David. So we don't know exactly when he wrote this psalm, but it fits the Absalom period, as do around five other psalms. The psalm is a psalm where David is calling upon God, crying to God in, <clears throat> in desperation to intercede in his situation and to protect him. It's an urgent uh, plea for God to come to his aid immediately. And what we learned from this passage is very simple, that believers who are growing spiritually before the Lord need not live in terror, need not be dominated by fear and anxiety if they trust the Lord for protection and relief. The biggest problem that we all face right now is the uncertainty of the situation. We don't know what to plan for. We don't know how to plan. Everybody has had their life put on pause. We're put on hold. Uh, People have various uh, (coughs) degrees of inconvenience. Uh, inconvenience may relate to their paycheck. It may relate to their family. They may, parents have many concerns about their children and their education. And many people in many different jobs, careers, businesses are uncertain about what the future will hold. Is this going to last for a week, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, eight months? We've heard some people, I think, somewhat uh, in an alarmist fashion, say it may go on for 18 months. We just have no idea. We have to go day by day. But, of course, for believers, that's how we should be conducting our lives, just one day at a time. And even though we plan, we should relax and live in the moment. I think a lot of good things are going to come out of this, possibly. I think we are going to have opportunities for families to come together. We're going to have opportunities for parents to take a lot of time to talk to their children about what is going on, why it's going on, to talk to them about spiritual things. And all of us may get opportunities to talk to others about the gospel, about spiritual things. It can be a an incredible time of witness. I think that um, <clears throat> I've heard that last week, People were very concerned about whether they would get the virus. That was the foremost thing. Am I safe? Am I secure? Am I going to be healthy? That was what they were worried about. But then as the reality was starting to set in about the closures, about working at home, about the possibility of shelter in place, especially if you are someone who lives in California, someone who lives in New York, uh, maybe Louisiana, some of the states that are hit the hardest, uh, there'd be great concerns about whether or not they would be able to pay their bills, pay their mortgages, uh, buy food. All of these things would be causes of concern, anxiety, worry, and perhaps even even fear. 
And none of us is exempt from the fact that as we look at certain situations that, that we may suddenly just sort of be seized by, by fear or terror. And actually that is what this, this psalm talks about is, uh, David facing a terror. What was going to happen because David was forced to leave his home. He, he left his palace. He left Jerusalem, which was called the city of David, so he's forced to flee from his own city. He's going to leave the country. He's going to cross over the Jordan, and he's going to go into the area that is called Transjordan. Today it's the kingdom of Jordan. Back then, the uh, area from roughly where Jerusalem is, from that uh, distance uh, northward, it was under the control of, of Israel, and David had had control, but there were enemies all around. And so his existence was threatened, his comfort was certainly threatened, he had to leave at the moment's notice, he had no idea if he would even have enough toilet paper to last uh, all the way across the Jordan. Today I saw an ironic note that Costco had to adopt a policy that nobody could return this massive amount of toilet paper and paper towels and other such products that, that they had bought in bulk thinking that it was the end of the world or something. So I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we saw people setting up shop in the Costco parking lot in the next week trying to sell what they overbought, but be that as it may. David got caught by surprise to some degree. He knew that Absalom had been uh, stirring up trouble, but he wasn't quite aware that it had gone as far as it was going and that Absalom was on his way. Absalom got within a mile of David. Absalom entered into the city of David as David was going uh, up the Kidron Valley, and if it weren't for the fact that Absalom decided to secure his control of Jerusalem, uh, he could have captured David. So there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty as far as David is concerned. Is he going to be able to return to the palace, to return to his city? Is he going to lose the kingdom? Is he going to be defeated in battle? Is he going to be captured and tortured or killed or executed in some horrible way? Uh, what about his wives? What about those concubines that he left behind? What is going to happen? And, of course, David, at the bottom of all of this, knew that this was the result of his own sin. And to some level, he shared in the responsibility of everything that was going on. But yet David wasn't going to let that bog him down in some kind of a guilt complex. This is often what happens to believers. We sin and we make mistakes, and then as we go forward, we realize that we're having to face the consequences of our own sin and our own rebellion. And it's easy for people to start to pile on the guilt. They start to self-flagellate. They start to get give into all of these guilt feelings, and what follows from that is discouragement and depression and the feelings of failure, and and it's a refusal to accept the fact that God has forgiven us. David very clearly knows that God has forgiven, forgiven him. One of the things I think is remarkable about David is he has a, a, a tremendous objectivity about his own life. When David is, is rebellious against God, when he has sinned, 
David owns up to it. He faces it. He confesses his sin. He's completely honest about the situation. But when David is not disobedient, when David is not in carnality, when David knows that he is right with the Lord, David has great strength and courage. He does not give in to these particular, uh, particular guilt feelings. So from this psalm and from others we learn the procedures. We learn how believers ought to respond when suddenly everything turns upside down, topsy-turvy, and all of a sudden we are faced with the unexpected crises of life that change everything. And so that is what has happened happened with David. Now, we all know, because I've reviewed this recently, as recently as Sunday morning, but there are all kinds of different crises that we may fall into. Even though David is facing a crisis of a conspiracy, he is the victim of slander. He's the victim of, of malicious, malignant lies. He has been the focus of this uh, conspiracy of rebellion, and he has been betrayed by uh, men he trusted, whose friendship he valued. Even though all of those horrible things have happened to him, uh, he's not focusing on it. Now, we may have other things happen to us. We may have uh, failures in relationships, which, of course, has more of a uh, parallel with what David has gone through with the betrayal. There may be uh, family problems. There may be problems in romance, in dating, problems in marriage, problems in the family. There can be rejection or perceived rejection. There are many things that can take place here, and the principles are still the same. Even though David faces one kind of crisis, we face another kind of crisis. The principles for handling those disasters are the same, and that is to turn to God, trust Him, claim promises, focus on God's Word, internalize, assimilate God's Word, and let God handle the situation. Now, when we say let God handle the situation, that doesn't mean that we fold our hands and we just sit still. We let God handle the situation, but we in turn do what God says to do. And God says to do things like pay attention to his word. So immerse ourselves in the study of God's word. We are to pray. We are to focus our attention on dependence and reliance upon the uh, power and the provision of God. We are to do any number of other responsible things in our life, taking care of our personal responsibilities as parents, as husbands or wives, as children of adult parents, we do what we're supposed to do. We carry out our duties, our responsibilities, and put the uh, recovery from the crisis in God's hands. Let him handle it. So whether we are facing uh, political disasters, whether we are facing military disasters, whether we are facing the various uh, problems that come because of a an out-of-control uh, bacteria or out-of-control virus, we are to do the same things. We, we behave responsibly, carrying out our, our, our responsibilities from whatever our position is, and then we let God do what he does. In terms of a health disaster, we do everything that we can in order to protect ourselves. We don't try to flaunt God's sovereignty. We don't test the Lord. When Christ was tested or tempted by Satan, and Satan said, 
uh, for him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. The Lord's response was, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And yet I've heard Christians make these statements like, well, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that, which are not the necessary responsibilities. It's just expressing a selfish desire to continue to do what I want to do when I want to do it without care or concern for the consequences for others. We're to love others as ourselves, which means that we don't put ourselves in positions where we might get infected, unless, of course, that happens to be our responsibility. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, you have uh, your job to do to go to somebody's house, repair uh, a problem with their electricity or their plumbing, or a doctor to go to the hospital. You're in the realm of your responsibility. You are not just uh, irresponsibly flaunting uh, the care and the providence of God. And so we trust God in the realm of our responsibility. <clears throat> well, we trust God in the realm of his protecting us while we carry out our responsibilities in a uh, mature manner. So what we see here is that David is facing a number of interrelated consequences. For example, it's a military disaster. It is also a political disaster. It's a relationship disaster, a family disaster. He's got family problems, problems with his son, problems with uh, with other, other children. Uh, it, it is going to relate to uh, problems of survival, do they have enough food, do they have enough water, all of the different uh, logistics, as well as how are they going to go uh, go forward. So he handles all of these, uh, which can all be the cause of fear, worry, anxiety, and even terror in the soul. But he is going to look at this from God's perspective and trust in God. And, of course, it also could be a tremendous economic catastrophe, not just for him, but for uh, the entire uh, the entire nation. So as we look at this psalm, 10 verses, it helps us to focus on how to pray in terms of God's protection. So the first part of the psalm is really uh, Psalm 64, uh, 1 and 2 where David cries out to God to protect him from those who seek his life. David cries out to God. It is a strong word in the Hebrew that he is he is uh, desperately calling upon God to immediately intervene in this crisis. That's the first two verses. Then we get to the second part, which is sort of the centerpiece of the of the psalm where David is describing what the problem is. And so what we see is that as believers, first of all, we call upon God to answer our prayer, and and we call upon God to protect us and to guard us and to keep us safe. And then we focus on what the problem is. We describe the problem to God. There are a lot of Christians who might say, well, God's omniscient. He knows what my problem is. I'm just going to say something general. But... That's not how we see the Bible portrays. God likes us to describe the things that are going on and what it is that we would like for him to do. So David describes these malignant, slanderous lies and the schemes of his enemy. And that's described in verses 3 through 6. And then we come to the last part, the last four verses, where David expresses his confidence that God will return the schemes on the heads of the conspirators. He's going to take 
their plot and he's going to upend it and turn their schemes back on the schemers. He is going to hoist them on their own petard and this will bring joy to the righteous. And so we don't always see that. But in this case, David is going to see it, even though in the process it will lead to the death of his son Absalom, and he will uh, deeply grieve for for his son Absalom. So in this first section, first two verses, has two parts. David cries out to God to hear his complaint, and complaint is a good word. Now, I can already hear somebody say, well, we're not supposed to murmur or complain. Not to each other, that's Ephesians, but to come to God, laying out our complaint. What is the situation? A synonym for this is the word lament. That's how these psalms are classified as lament psalms, but we could also classify them as complaint psalms, where he is not complaining as a whiny baby, but he is expressing to God what the problem is. You know, the word complain has different nuances. We often think of it as somebody who's just crying and whining about whatever's going on in their life. But a complaint is also something that can be brought against somebody in a legal case, that there is a complaint about something that they have done and that it is being brought before a judge so that the judge will act in their favor. And that's the idea here. We must remember that a lot of the things that are used in Scripture have their background in in the judicial system and judicial language. For example, a believer's salvation is often expressed as justification. We are justified before God. Why? Because we are unjust. We have failed. We have fallen short of the standard of God's essence. We are guilty in before God's bar of justice, before the Supreme Court of Heaven. We are guilty, therefore we are under the condemnation of Adam's original sin. We are under the condemnation of our own uh, of our own uh, mental attitude sins, and we are under the co- condemnation of personal sins and um, and the imputed sins that are that are ours. So because of that, we have these three strikes against us, Adam's original sin, imputed sin, and our own personal sins. And so uh, that is uh, then has to be dealt with. And before the court of God, someone has to pay the penalty. And Jesus Christ steps forward. He pays the penalty. We are imputed. That's another legal term. We are uh, given his righteousness legally so that God looks at us on the basis of Christ's righteousness and declares us to be righteous. And that doesn't mean that we have been made righteous. We have received the righteousness of Christ and declared to be legally just, legally righteous. So we have these legal terms, and the legal term here is that this is a a complaint. He's filing a complaint before the Supreme Court of Heaven against his enemies because of the way they have vilified him and the way they have slandered him and the way they have conspired and rebelled against him. So first of all, in the first part of verse 1, he cries out to God to hear his complaint. And then in the second part of this first section, he prays to God, he implores God, he pleads with God to preserve his life, to protect his life, to guard his life, and to hide him from his enemies and their rebellion. So let's look at how this works itself out in the text of Scripture. So it begins in Psalm 64, 1. 
with the first step to cry out to God with confidence. And so we should cry out to God with confidence because we know that the Creator God controls history. And so we can pray to him with confidence that he hears us. David knows that he is in right relationship with God. He's in fellowship, walking in fellowship with God. And so he can cry out to God with great confidence, calling upon God to intervene in his life. And so according to the New King James Version, it reads, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Now, I want you to notice some of these other translations. The uh, NET Bible, which I don't recommend people get. I, I use it on occasion for uh, different uh, ideas, see how they translate things. They usually point out uh, where the problems are, but a lot of times I don't agree with their solutions. But in verse 1, they say, listen to me, O God as I offer my lament. And that's an I think, is a very good translation. Because when you read in Scripture, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is a unity. Hear doesn't mean just make sure that the auditory nerves in your ears have been stimulated. It means to listen and act accordingly. So that when somebody says, well, you didn't listen to me, what they mean is not that you didn't hear what I said, but that you need to do what I said to do. And that's how it's used so many times in Scripture, and that's how it's used here. David is not saying, Lord, just make sure that you are aware of my complaint. He's saying, intervene, do something, listen and act. So the uh, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it, God, hear my voice when I complain. Notice how they use the word complain instead of the more formal lament of the NET. Protect my life from the terror of the enemy. And then uh, Alan Ross in his uh, commentary on the Psalms translates it, Hear, O God, my voice in my complaint. Guard my life from the terror of the enemy. And that's really the heart of this prayer is to be protected from the fear that comes from the enemy. So what exactly does that mean? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. So he makes this statement, hear, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Now, New King James uses that word meditation. You notice none of the others do, because meditation is a possible meaning for the word that is used here, but it just doesn't fit the context. Meditation is the idea of where we're stopping, we're reflecting upon what God says and upon his word so that we can understand what it means and then act accordingly. The word here is the word shema. Now, that's a very famous word in Hebrew. It is the same word that's used in the Shema, what is called the Shema, which is a central verse for Jews in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is a unity. The Lord is, uh, is one. That is a very important central verse for, for Judaism. And it's the same word here. It is here, my voice. It's a cal imperative. And so this is not an imperative of a superior to an inferior. It is the imperative of a request. I remember 
uh, in times past when I've taught Greek to many different pastors who didn't know the original language, they would say, well, why is this an imperative? And you get into the health and wealth gospel crowd who are ignorant about so much theologically and just filled with heresy. Uh, they think this means that you as a believer can demand certain actions from God. And so you name it and claim it. And that is just the uh, total ignorance and abuse of the language. Uh, cal- an imperative can be used as an imperative of, of command, or it can be an imperative of request. And this is a request. He is pleading with God to listen and act and intervene. And so he says, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. And when he says this, he starts off talking like this, it's obvious that David is a man who knows how to pray. He has confidence in his prayer. A lot of believers don't know how to pray, and they don't have confidence in their prayers. But the Scripture clearly teaches that we should know how to pray, and we should have confidence in our prayers. And so often when I've taught this, I have used the acronym C-A-T-S, CATS, in order to teach the four elements of prayer. Now, a prayer does not have to have all four elements. Often we find that uh, only two or three are present in any given prayer in the Scripture. The first, the C, stands for confession. And David clearly understands the need for confession. We've seen that in Psalm 32. We've seen it in Psalm 51. But, um, and in passages like Psalm 66, 18, where David says, If I regard, and regard there's the word, That means to see. If I look into my soul, if I look at my life, if I examine my life, Paul uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the need for self-examination. If I regard iniquity in my heart, in in my soul, in my thinking, in the innermost part of my being, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. There are many conditions for the Lord hearing that is uh, responding to prayer, not just being aware that you have prayed, but responding to our prayer. And so one of those things that blocks the transmission is sin. Another thing that blocks the transmission is if a person is spiritually dead, if they are not a believer. It doesn't matter how religious they are. It doesn't matter how moral they are. It doesn't matter how kind or good or sweet they are. The Lord says that if you're spiritually dead, the only prayer that God is going to hear is a prayer related to somehow I want to know about you, I want to learn the gospel, I want to hear the gospel, somehow I want to know what the real meaning of life is. Any prayer related to ultimately learning, hearing uh, the gospel is a prayer that God will respond to. Otherwise, God does not Listen, and when we say God doesn't listen, we mean God is not going to uh, intervene in, in, in those prayers. We have other passages, uh, promises, that some have been written by David, some by others, but he clearly knew these things in the, uh, when he was writing. And in Psalm 34, 6, 34, 15, and 34, 17, uh, the psalmist makes these points about prayer. This poor man cried out, talking about himself, and Yahweh heard him. 
It means he heard and responded. How did he respond? He delivered him from all of his adversity, all of his troubles. And then a few verses later, he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of the Lord is a figure of speech known as an anthropomorphism. Morph is a word that refers to form, like you talk about the form of a word or the morphology of a word. And so the form there is that God is attributed uh, a human form, eyes, sometimes ears, sometimes nose, sometimes hands, finger, arm. These are all human characteristics which God does not actually possess, but they communicate something to us. So the eyes of the Lord are talking about his knowledge, his awareness of situations, his omniscience. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's watching. He's aware. He knows what's going on of those who are saved. Now, often when we read the Psalms, we get confused because we think the word righteous refers to those who are living a righteous life. And they might be. But that is not necessarily how the word is used in, in, in Scripture. How do we know that we are righteous? We know that we are righteous because we have trusted in the gospel, whether it's the Old Testament gospel or New Testament gospel, and that when we do, God imputes righteousness to us. What, how do we know that? We know that from Genesis 15:6, that Abram believed God and God imputed it or reckoned it to him as righteousness. Well, Abraham was a pretty good guy. So, so he was pretty righteous overall. Well, that's not the real picture you see. There were a lot of failures, a lot of sins in Abraham's life. But the person you should go to to understand this concept of righteousness is not Abraham, but his nephew. His nephew's name was Lot. And Lot was like a lot of believers. He had his eye on the comforts of life. He had his eyes on enjoying all of the uh, wonderful things and comforts uh, that he could uh, enjoy. And he wasn't really concerned about compromise. He wasn't concerned about the kind of people that were around him, as long as people thought well of him and as long as he could enjoy, you know, the prosperity of life. And so there came a time that is described in Genesis chapter uh, 14 when when um, uh, Abraham and Lot were living in close proximity. Lot had quite a bit of wealth. He had his own herds and flocks. He had his herdsmen. He had those who worked for him. And, and he lived in close proximity with Abraham. And Abraham had his own people. And these uh, people that worked for them began to uh, fight uh, with one another. And so Abraham had to decide what they were going to do. They were going to have to separate, go their separate ways, because sometimes people just can't get along or the people who work for them can't get along. And in order to have peace, you have to separate. And so Abraham called Lot to himself and very graciously said, Okay, Lot, we have all of this land. You know the whole story. God's given us this land. We are here. We have all of this land from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. We have land going down to the uh, River of Egypt, and we have land that goes all the way up to Euphrates. All of this will be given to us by God, but we can't really live together, so you pick the land you want. 
And so Lot thought this was a great deal, and he looked around, and there was a beautiful, beautiful area that was along the Dead Sea. It was quite different from it is the way it is today. The Dead Sea wasn't a Dead Sea at that time. It wasn't a Salt Sea at that time, but it was a beautiful, lush area. In fact, the Scripture says that as Lot looked, he saw this area, and it was well watered like all the land going down to Egypt. Well, if you've ever been there, if you've ever been to the Negev Desert in the south of Israel, if you've ever been to the area around the Dead Sea, whether on the uh, Israeli side or on the Jordan side, there's, there's one word you would never use to describe it, and that is well-watered. It is barren. It is dry. It is some of the driest, hottest desert that you can imagine. But obviously, it wasn't all that way. And so Lot chose to live down by the Dead Sea in the uh, five cities of the plain as they're described. And one and two of them were Sodom and Gomorrah, where all sorts of horrible immorality took place and where it was a very wicked, wicked place. But God then, a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, says that he, uh, he and um, two angels come to visit Abraham. And Abraham sees them coming, and he prepares a great feast for them, and he has this conversation with God. And in the midst of that conversation, God sort of has a a little side conversation with the two angels and said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he said, no, I shouldn't. So he tells Abraham that he is about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham wants to intercede for his nephew Lot who lives in in Sodom. And he, he says, Lord, well, would you save Sodom? Would you withhold your judgment if there were a hundred righteous people, if there were 50 righteous people, if there were 30? And he works his way down until he gets down to about 10. And, and then the Lord says, no, I would, uh, in every case, I would refrain my judgment. And so he tells Abraham that what he will do is he will go and remove Lot and his family from Sodom. He's going to take the righteous people out. Now, here's this compromiser. Here's this person who's got, who's living uh, with all of this sin around in total approval of everything that's going on. He is not experientially righteous at all. And yet he is positionally righteous. He's referred to as righteous in those chapters. And in Second Peter, he is also referred to as righteous lot. So the righteous is a term that refers to those who are positionally righteous, those who are believers. So when we read of this term, the righteous cry out, it is viewing those who are believers. They are crying out, and the Lord hears, the Lord listens, the Lord responds, and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now, the Lord may not deliver you the way you want to be delivered, but he is going to protect and preserve us. And that is the point of this psalm, that God in his goodness is going to protect and preserve us. We have no idea how this is going to play out in the in the coming weeks. But we know that God is in control and God is going to watch over us and God is going to protect us. And it certainly might be that in the midst of this, God might decide that one of the reasons 
that that we are on this planet is so that we can be a faithful witness in this disaster. And the result may be that some of us may indeed become infected and we may have to be put in the hospital. We'll come under medical care and it will give us an opportunity to witness, to tell people the gospel. Perhaps we will be used to lead some to Jesus Christ, to a saving knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And we just don't know, but we know that we can trust God and we can even say, as it says in Job, that though he slay me, Yet will I trust him that no matter what takes place, I know that I am living according to God's plan and whatever takes place, however negative it might seem to me in my limited, finite human viewpoint, God is in control and I am being used by him and there's a purpose and there's a mission for me. So we can cry out to God with confidence in the New Testament, we have promises such as Matthew uh, 7, 7, and 8. Uh, easy way to remember this if you are memorize, trying to memorize Scripture is the first word is ask, A-S-K. And that's an acronym for the verse. A for ask, and it will be given to you. S is for seek, and you shall find. And the K is for knock, and it will be open unto you. And so if you can just remember A-S-K, ask, then you can remember this promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. A tremendous promise, a tremendous prayer promise. Another great prayer promise is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will. Now, everybody stumbles over that. Sometimes they have an escape clause at the end of every every prayer saying, Father, I pray for all these things, but if you don't want any of it, that's okay. Just pull the plug, and if it's not your will, that's okay. That's not a very confident prayer. And it's usually from somebody who's an immature believer who doesn't know whether they're praying anything in light of God's will. But we know God's will, as it's described here, just by what we know from the Scripture. Not, we're not asking out of selfishness. We're not asking uh, out of, out of the, any desire to fulfill our sin nature lust patterns. We're not motivated by anger or resentment or anything like that. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He listens and responds. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And then the last one for today is Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now the therefore is there for a reason. And that is because just prior to this, the writer of Hebrews has talked about the fact that we have a high priest who is like we are, yet without sin. And he intercedes for us. First uh, John 2 
uh, one, he is our advocate. He stands in our place. And so because he is our high priest, because he stands in our place, therefore we can come boldly with confidence before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so these are tremendous promises. But even when we pray these things, uh, we may not be absolutely sure that what God is going to do in this this COVID-19 crisis, that we're going to live through it, that we are going to survive. But we can pray with confidence, and we can trust God, and we have to have the kind of mentality that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael had in Daniel chapter 3. So I want you to hold your place here in Psalm 64, and we're going to turn over to Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, turning towards the end of the uh, Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3. And the situation here is that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he is the uh, autocratic ruler. He has the highest authority on all of the earth. And he is overwhelmed with his own arrogance. So after having had a vision about a statue that partially represented him as the head of gold, he decides to make his own statue of himself, and he's going to have everybody come and bow down and worship him. So they have this entire huge ceremony. They have thousands of people that are all brought out onto this plane, and they have an orchestra set up, and when the orchestra play, everybody's supposed to bow down and worship. And if they don't, then he is going to throw them into this uh, incredibly huge fiery furnace. And so at that, he brings everybody out. The orchestra plays. Everybody bows down except for three people. These are Daniel's three friends, usually known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the Babylonian names given to them, but their Jewish names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And so there were uh, enemies, those who were jealous of them because God had blessed them very much because of the way they had been used to interpret uh, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And they come out in verse 12 and they say, well, there's some Jews, Nebuchadnezzar. They hate you and they're not going to bow down to you and you need to punish them. And so this just really ticked off Nebuchadnezzar. He had a temper tantrum and he uh, flew into a rage and commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were to be brought to him in, in verse 13. And then he spoke to them, and he, as a good leader does, he asked if this was true, if they had failed to bow down um, and that you won't serve uh, their gods and won't serve uh, worship the God image that he had set up, and so he was going to give them one more chance that it says in verse 15 that if you're ready, when you hear the orchestra play, when you hear the sound of the instruments, then you can bow down. But if you don't worship, then I'm going to throw you immediately into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? He's throwing a challenge uh, before God. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not shaking in their sandals, they're not fearful, they're not uh, afraid they have not overcome by terror because of their trust in the living God. 
And we read in Daniel 3.16 that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, notice they're respectful. They're not antagonistic. They're not hostile. They're not insulting. They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, you don't need to give us a second chance. Second time, third time, fourth time, we're going to do the same thing. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Our God is able to answer our prayer. He's able to keep us safe and secure in the midst of any pestilence, any plague, any disease. But that doesn't mean that he's bound to do that. Uh, And that's what they come to. They say, he can save us. He'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But look at verse 18. But if not... Because they have no certainty. There's no word from God that he's going to deliver them. Uh, They said, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And so we're all pretty familiar with the story that what happened afterwards is that Nebuchadnezzar just absolutely lost it, absolutely went ballistic and called upon everybody to stoke up the fire in the furnace until it was so hot that he, when he commanded the guards and he had them put on all kinds of extra clothes and protective gear, that nevertheless the fire was so hot that it killed them before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. But they go into the furnace. The fire doesn't touch them. It doesn't harm them. They don't even break a sweat. And then when uh, the other guards go to look inside, they are amazed because there was a fourth person in there. And Nebuchadnezzar goes and he says, didn't we cast those men bound into the midst of the fire? The fire had burned off their uh, the ropes that had bound them. And he look, says, look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And so God delivered them. But they trusted God, but there was no guarantee that God was going to respond the way he thought they would. And this is a great verse to remember. Though he slay me, Job said, yet will I trust him. But if he doesn't answer my prayer, if he doesn't deliver me, if I am sick, if I lose my job, if more things happen that are not what I think are desirable, I'm going to trust him because God knows everything there is to know about everything. And I don't know diddly squat. I don't know anything. I know less than one-tenth of one percent of one-tenth of one percent of of anything I should know. I'm just totally ignorant. God knows what's best, and I am going to trust him, and I'm going to put myself completely in his hands. David has this kind of confidence. He calls upon God, and he says, listen to me. Uh, Listen to me, O God, when I complain. Now, this word complain is, like I said earlier, it's not this kind of whiny, simpering, uh, self-centered complaint about how bad things is. He's not overcome with self-pity about the fact that he's been run out of out of his palace and out of the city of David. It, it, It is a broad word. It's the Hebrew word siach. And it has the idea in some context of your your inner life, what you are thinking, what you're reflecting upon. And in those passages, it is translated uh, meditation. But in other passages, it has the idea of a complaint, like a formal complaint, like, 
Like, I am bringing this situation before the Supreme Court of Heaven for God to adjudicate. I am in the right. I am righteous. And God, I am putting this uh, before your throne of grace so that you will act on my behalf, act on behalf of of the righteous. So this is the idea here. He is setting forth uh, his complaint. Now, this word is used in another interesting passage, also a prayer passage, also a passage where a woman uh, was just completely overwhelmed with her circumstances and her uh, her situation. And this is in in First Samuel. And in First Samuel, we read about a woman named um, Hannah, and Hannah is married to a man named Elkanah. And Hannah cannot have any children. Hannah is barren, and she desperately wants to have children. And Elkanah has needed to have children, so he has taken a second wife, and she is uh, having children one after the other, and she has made life horrible for Hannah. She's always ridiculing her. She is always uh, making fun of her. She is always uh, slandering her. And so we read in First uh, Samuel chapter one that that Hannah goes to the tabernacle. Now she, like David, is who uh, uh, she, like David, is is the victim of slander. She is the victim of scorn and ridicule. And so she goes, and as she prays. Her, her lips move and she is just weeping in anguish and bitterness of her soul. And Eli, the high priest, is watching her and he thinks she's drunk. And so this is her response in 1 Samuel 1.16 to Eli. Eli says, you're a drunk woman. Get away. Get out of here. And she says, do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. For out of the abundance of my complaint... See, she's taking her prayer request before the Supreme Court of Heaven. She is laying forth a complaint in the legal sense. This is the case, Lord. Act in my behalf and allow me to have a child. So she said she, this is called a complaint. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. So this is a common way in which this word has been has been translated. Uh, so David cries out to God in this section for God to protect him from those who seek his life. This is the first part of Psalm 64.1. David cries out to God to listen and intercede in his life. And then the next section, from the second half of verse 1 to verse 2, David prays for God to preserve his life and to hide him from his enemies in their rebellion. So there's two aspects. Preserve or protect me is a better translation. Protect my life. And second, hide me or conceal me from my enemies and their rebellion. So this is the... Uh, second half of the first verse. He prays to God, protect my life from the fear of the enemy. So this is his next request. Uh, Lord, protect my life. This is the word Nazar, and it has the idea of protecting, watching, guarding, or keeping. And each of those words are common words for translating this particular uh, uh, term. 
And so the issue is that he is afraid of his enemy, and he is fearful. Uh, in fact, the word is, I think it's weak to translate fear. He is terrorized. He can be. So like any of us, we see something, and panic, terror is this response of the sin nature. And then we uh, look to God, we look to the promises of God, and we uh, gain control over this uh, terror, this fear that invades our soul. It's used in some great promises. Look at Psalm 32, 7, where David is praying to God and he says, you are my hiding place. Now, this is another word that will show up in some other pa- similar passages. You, O oh God, you're my hiding place. You shall protect me. That's Nazar. You shall protect me from trouble. You're going to protect me so that adversity doesn't destroy me. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, if, if you've been around a while, you may recognize something familiar in that first line. Where David prays, you are my hiding place, that later became the title for uh, Corey Tin Boom's autobiography, Corey Ten Boom was a young Dutch woman. She and her sister her, and her lived with her father. And when World War II broke out, when the Germans invaded Holland, and when they were starting to round up the Jews, uh, he was a believer. The two daughters were believers, and they began to hide and protect the Jews. And eventually they were found out. They were betrayed, and uh, the father... Uh, and, and the two daughters were all thrown into concentration camps, and the father died, and the sister died. But Corey continued to live, and in fact, I heard her speak in Houston, uh, back in the, in the, in the 70s. And so, this was the title of her book, but it's a double entendre. It's, it's a play on words. Uh, the hiding place referred to the place where the family hid the Jews. They had this secret area walled off so that nobody would know that it was, this room was back there, and they called that the hiding place. But for this family of evangelical believers, they knew that the real hiding place was God. He was their protector. He was the one who would watch over them, and he did. But he had other plans and purposes other than just making life comfortable and delivering them. As I said, her sister died in a concentration camp. Her father died in a concentration camp. It was not pleasant. But they all had many, many opportunities to witness to people. And it gave Corey Ten Boom a story of the grace and the provision of God that she carried with her and proclaimed to the world uh, throughout the rest of her life. And so uh, in the midst of the horrible things that happened to her sister and to her and to her father, God was still working because, as I pointed out on Sunday, one of the reasons that we go through adversity, one of the reasons that we suffer is so that we can be a testimony to others and to the angels. And sometimes that means that we're going to go through some hardship, some difficulty, some pain, some suffering. If our Lord Jesus Christ went through it, he said that we too would, those who would follow him, uh, would go through this. In fact, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy that those who desire to be godly will be persecuted. So that's just a straight promise. Those, those aren't the fun promises in Scripture. Those, those are the promises, though, that are, are there. They who, pro- who desire to be godly will be persecuted. 
because the world, Jesus said, the world hated me and it will hate you. And so the issue in suffering is we have to have confidence in God. We have to trust in him and we have to go to him in prayer. And as we hide ourselves in the rock, in the fortress of God, then he will protect us and preserve us. We'll come back next time to look at uh, much of the rest of this psalm. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that you are our protector, our fortress, you are our shield, you are our our rock, you are the one who secures and saves us, protects us, provides for us. You are the one who preserves us and that nothing uh, can happen to us that is not allowed by your permission. And, Father, yet we are to grow in the midst of these tests and these trials. We are to trust you. We are to have joy even in the midst of these trials, as James says, counting it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We are not here on this earth for our comfort. We are not here to indulge our desires, our our pleasures, but we are here to serve you, to walk with you, and to be a testimony of the living God and the living Savior who conquered sin and death, uh, sin at the cross and death in the resurrection, that we might have everlasting life. Father, we pray that we might... Uh, not fail in our trust, our efforts to, to serve you, that even in the midst of what may come in this, in, in this pandemic, that we may relax and trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.